Hi, I'm Nicole Breeden. And I'm Kira Brekurek. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. Today we are speaking with Sybil Kempson. Sybil Kempson's plays have been presented in the United States, Germany and Norway and in 2015 she launched the theatre company Seven Daughters of Eve in New York City. Her project Twelve Shouts to the Ten Forgotten Heavens, a three-year cycle of rituals for the new Whitney Museum of American Art in the Meatpacking District of New York, began on the Vernal Equinox in March 2016, reoccurring every solstice and equinox through to December 2018. Other recent projects include True Pearl, a new opera with David Lang for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, and Sasquatch Rituals at the Kitchen in New York City, both in 2018. Her plays are published by 53rd State Press, Play, Journal of Plays, and Performance and Art Journal. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today, Sybil. Thank you, Kira. Thank you, Nicole, for inviting me. Um, Do you mind starting off by letting us know the story of how you came to become an artist slash writer slash performance maker? I will tell you everything that I know consciously. (laughs) Uh, So my parents were both uh, teachers. They're still alive, um, but they are retired. They were public school teachers. And... um, my mother is very dramatic, and um, my father is a really great storyteller. And they're very uh, lively, friendly people. And I always had, a, I was an only child, and they split up when I was a little baby. And I had a very active imagination. I still do, overactive. And I did a lot of imagining, and I did a lot of uh Henrik Ibsen style playing with dolls, making up stories. And I began to see very early because of a couple of like sad kind of cruel experiences that I had with different adults who shall remain nameless (laughs) uh, for the sake of this uh, podcast that um, things are not always as they seem. And adults would carry around a certain reality that they were agreeing on that I was expected to agree to and fold into as well, but that that wasn't always what was going on. So I guess that's subtext. (laughs) And so subtext became a big deal for me, an atmosphere. And I was very sensitive. And I think that I was open to the unseen but I don't know because uh, they sort of shut that down. My mother didn't, but my dad definitely did. He was a science teacher, so it was like anything that Uh cannot be proven doesn't exist. Uh And so you think you're seeing something, but you're really not. And he was really into Carl Sagan as sort of the explanation for the universe. And um, my mother was really into telling stories. Uh, We had a, our house was haunted where I grew up where I lived just with me and my mom, which was scary because it was just me and her and our little tiny dog who did, he was very brave and macho, macho, but he, you know, there's only so much he could do. (laughs) And he tried. I mean, he was fierce, but there's only so much he could do. So my mother would like make up a story about the ghost and she named the ghost and his name was Herman and 
And she would also tell us, tell me stories. She would tell them to sort of herself and to me, I think, about a little girl named Margaret. And we would get under her desk and she would in the knee hole of her desk. And that was sort of like our little story cave. And uh, so, so that was a big deal. And then it turned into performing later, I think around the time she started dating my stepfather. So I was about six when he started coming around. And he was sort of my first uh, audience mm-hmm. and I would entertain him and he always got my jokes and he would laugh and laugh and laugh. And then I had my father's parents were, uh, they lived um, sort of in the condominium unit for a while next to the one where my dad and my stepmother lived. And they would sort of let me do these shows and they would sit and watch and applaud and it was very positive for me. because, And there wasn't a lot of positive feedback going on in my life at that time. So that was sort of how I learned to relate to people in a positive way. And around the time, I wrote a lot. And, and um, when I was in grade school, they had a gifted program. And I somehow ended up in the gifted program which later we moved and they were like, no, she doesn't qualify. for the <laughs> But the first place that I lived, I was in this and it was a great little program. And at a certain point, they let us write the, these stage adaptations of different myths. And so we did wow. Theseus, Theseus, the, he, the big hero who I can't remember much. I remember there was a foot washer character who we made sort of into an Ed Grimley type character. And so I wrote the stage adaptation. How old were you? I think I was eight or nine. Wow. And they did it. Like it got performed. And there was another like a girlfriend who I had done projects with before. We had done, uh, we had built a Lenape longhouse together out of clay. We were studying the Lenape tribe, which was the tribe who were the traditional owners of the land in New Jersey where I grew up. And they actually had a great uh, education program about different, um, a lot of different stuff, but the Lenape uh, was one of the subjects. So that was really great. And then, so she and I worked really well together and she ended up sort of being the producer and taking care of all the practical stuff. And I was, I don't know how that this was allowed to happen in a public school, but I was allowed to cast it and decide how it was going to happen. And then we did another one after that, which was Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. Mm-hmm. And I brought in all my dress-up clothes, so I did the costumes. And, and like, it, it was performed in our little auditorium that was also our cafeteria. And no one stopped it from happening. And I was very mischievous about the way I had some of the boys cross-dressing and playing the fairies who attended the Fountain of Youth. And and so when I look at what I'm doing now, it's kind of the same thing. And getting away with something, waiting until some teacher or administrator comes (laughs) in and says, no, stop this right now. And no one ever came in. And I can't believe that it's happening. I can't believe I'm allowed to do it. So Mm -hmm. that was definitely the start of it. And some other stuff happened in between that. And when it actually, I actually actively began to pursue that. But that was the first experience Mm. of it. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. so involved for a child. Yeah, it really was. I I can't believe that it was allowed to happen Mm. in this public elementary school. Mm. It was kindergarten through eighth grade. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
Incredible. Mm-hmm. So when you transitioned into, now I'm going to stuff this up because I just know high school, what is that for Americans? It's Is that? Um, high school. It is high school. Grade well. nine. So yeah. you're like 14 to 17. Okay. Yeah. Did you, when you transitioned into that, was it still something that was, you you were spending a lot of time doing or was it something you were like grew out of for a stage or I moved my first year of high school and mm-hmm. I had already been in like the the big stage pro- I had done community theater I had gone to theater camp and mm. I had done um like a big stage production of Noises Off with like and I was so I was friends with all the seniors who were in that and it was so awesome <laughs> And then we moved and everyone was like threatening all these different groups of other girls were threatening to beat me up all the time. Oh God. And I'm gonna change your mind with theater. <laughs> <laughs> Which eventually I did, but it took four, <laughs> definitely four years. So at that school it was more about the band, the school band and the show choir and the mm. chorus. And there wasn't really a lot. They, we did get one drama workshop and I basically made a performance piece that the guy was like, I don't know how to relate to this. So I don't know what to say to you about what you made. The teacher. Yes. <laughs> I basically made like I took some clothes and I rolled up newspapers and I, I made a dummy. I used to love to make dummies like at Halloween and stuff. And we were given a monologue to say, and I just made a performance piece for it that had nothing. Like, I didn't try to do realism or anything. Mm. It's like, no, I need to do this. And the guy with just, he didn't know. He was a theater guy, you know? Yeah. So. Were you, um, you mentioned community theater, but were you, were you going to see plays and performances or was it kind of you taking it in from other aspects. Thank you for bringing this up, Kira, because there was a woman in my life who was sort of like an adopted grandmother and Mm. her name was Edna Fredericks. And I was like an adopted grandchild for Mm. her. And I called her Minimum. That was her name to her grandchildren. I was allowed to call her that too. And she used to go see shows on Broadway. We didn't live that far from New York City. So we'd go there for class trips and stuff. And so I saw a production of Annie Mm. when I was like maybe five and it blew my mind and I said that's it that's I'm doing that I'm gonna play Annie (laughs) and for Christmas that year my mother gave me the record album and I listened every day and I practiced it was very difficult those songs are not easy to sing and I was waiting for my mother to bring me to the audition and I was worried about it and we never went to the Mm. audition and I found the program later, uh, recently, like maybe a couple years ago when I was moving house. And it had been Sarah Jessica Parker was Annie. Oh, whoa. <laughs> production. And I had gotten autographs. I don't think I had her autograph, but all the other, you know, orphan girls. So that sort of did it. That's Sarah it. Jessica Parker. Yes, she played Annie. That was her first breakout role. That's incredible. And there was a man that lived down the street from us who would complete, he worked in film, special effects, and he would completely transform himself every Halloween. Oh, incredible. Oh, amazing. And, 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 you know, with before there were contact lenses and we would go there for Halloween and it was like, what is he going to do? And it was such a gift to, 
to me because yeah. I saw like this is how far you could go. Totally. Creativity. That, that must have been like the best day of the whole year for him. For all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween was oh. the best day. And mm-hmm. it was right at the borderline where bad stuff was starting to happen, but we were still carrying on the tradition. So mm. it wasn't getting watered down yet. Mm-hmm. It was pure magic. That is a magical holiday. There's no doubt in my mind. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my parents... Um, my mother especially encouraged artistic practice mm. for me. And I think she is an artist. I've heard her say, because I would go wild also when people were around. Uh, anytime we had company or were in a social situation, because we lived quite an isolated life. So if there were people around, I would go totally wild. <laughs> and sometimes, yes. Mm. And uh, people would say to her, she's told me later, aren't you going to stop her from doing that? Aren't you going to do anything about that? And she was like, she's not hurting anything. Mm. And she would let me go. And she didn't squash it, which was maybe the hugest gift that Mm. anyone gave me was not to squash that expression. Mm. For sure. Mm. You're so lucky in that way. Yes. Mm. Because there were a lot of students who I went to my second high school with who were creative and there wasn't a structure, there wasn't a framework for them to express it, mm. and they ended up doing drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And, um, I also went, when I did move to Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania sponsored a school called the Governor's School for the Arts, and it was sponsored by the state. It doesn't exist anymore, but that is what really, you went for a month and away from home to a university campus and it was kids it was 200 kids from all over the state like all the freaks from their high school (laughs) you thought you were alone in the world and then no it turns out there's so many like you that are the freak in their school and we got to spend a month together and they had these incredible teachers and there was uh, dance music creative writing visual art and theater arts and they worked us into the ground and worked Mm. us the way that you end up working Mm -hmm. if Mm. when you become an artist Mm -hmm. and like yeah you're going to be really tired and they taught us about arts advocacy and it was incredible and it taught me about rigor Mm. and and advocacy and so and and it let me know there's more there is Mm -hmm. more than what you've been shown in your life Mm -hmm. so far Mm -hmm. that is out there for you that's so exciting it saved Mm. me so when you were finishing you had you had an idea of I guess you were kind of exposed in that sliver of time to what it would be like did um did you know when you finished high school that you definitely wanted to go on and study or were you (laughs) yes yes uh that was there was no question. Mm. There's nothing else that I wanted to do. And there were all, I remember there were friends of my parents that would be like having, because my parents never had these talks with me. They were a little worried about if I, they wanted me to go to a state school, you know, where I would get in state tuition because we weren't wealthy. We weren't wealthy people. Um, but I wanted to go to all these really expensive, private, <laughs> you know, fancy arts, liberal arts colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did end up, going to one we just found a way to work it out it wasn't easy but yeah. I, I ended up going and what did you study uh well I went to a, a school called Bennington College it was very small mm-hmm. and you could study whatever you wanted wow it was almost like a Montessori school yeah. in that mm-hmm. way 
which maybe I took actually a lot of visual art Mm -hmm. in the beginning of my time there and the end of my time there. I was taking ceramics and painting, and that's where I really got into learning about process. And our teachers were these incredible, uh, the visual art teachers were really, really incredible uh, teachers. They would come up from New York. It was like a three, three and a half hour commute for them. They would come up once a week and teach us. And then go back to the city and continue their own practice. So they're always showing up really haggard. And, (laughs) you know, they weren't there for office hours during the week. But they they really gave us a lot about what it means to make artwork and Mm -hmm. have a process. And I still use their teachings to this day. Mm. And as a teacher also, my teaching practice, which is mostly teaching writing, I reference the stuff that I learned in the visual art courses more than anything else. Mm. But I studied theater. So I studied acting, costume design, some literature and some, I really liked um, ethics, Mm. philosophy and ethics. I got into that a little in high school. We had a a high school uh, teacher who was a philosophy teacher and, um, and the visual art stuff, ceramics and painting. I really was into all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At this time, did you have like a, a vision or a dream to be like, I'm going to be an actor and do this kind of thing. Yes. Yes. I wanted to be like a theater, film and television actor. Mm. And something broke my confidence at that school that I went to. There was a lot of drugs there and it was kind of actually a really dark time for me. And I was in a very angry place. And also the dream of what I was shown I probably should have gone to a conservatory if I had wanted that to happen, what I was shown at the governor's school that I was saying about, Um, because it was very much, it was like a rich kid's school, and they were very just wanting to party. Uh, And so the vision was, like, go to New York. Oh, yeah. 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 And be Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm -hmm. Like, that was... But it. Mm -hmm. I got sidetracked from that. It didn't really work out. It was a crisis of confidence. If you want to be Sarah Jessica Parker, you've got to have confidence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I I had some questions about it. So I... I, That is not what happened to me. I ended up Mm. in an experimental community of experimental theater artists. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where I've stayed. Mm. Mm -hmm. Just going back to um, some of the stuff you were saying earlier, um, mythology seems to be something that kind of, you know, keeps cropping up um, so far in the discussion. Is that something that came from that, you know, the ghost and the, you know, the school production? Like where where was that, the seed of that kind of born for you? Nicole, you just really put your finger on something for me. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I am seeing that now. I am seeing that. Yes, it was all about what is beyond reality for me. What is not, either it's not seen or if it is, no one's talking about it. And I could never tell which was which. I could never tell what I was seeing that other people were also seeing and ignoring Or what I was seeing that no one else was seeing. And I had a lot of fears. I was really afraid of um, aliens, Sasquatch. I talked about that when we did the Jaffel Symposium. Terrified of a lot of um, the unexplainable and the unknown. Mm -hmm. And so, and that is the realm of mythology. That's how 
that's how mythology becomes so important, I think, in a culture is how do we explain what we can't see mm. and what we don't know. And it's where religion comes from and ritual. And so all of my work, I feel like, has always since our production of Theseus and the Foot Washer in grade four <laughs> <laughs> has been contending with that. In mm. fact. Mm-hmm. It's kind of great that you found it so early. Like, <laughs> man, I feel mm-hmm. super lucky. Yeah. In fact, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, some people don't find their, their, um, that kind of crux of their practice until much later. So well, I didn't know that. I, yeah. found out, I thought I was going to do Sarah Jessica Parker <laughs> style. But actually, I'm thinking about my college experience, my undergraduate experience, and it being so dark, that also was in line with mm. um, with everything that I had been actually pointing to instead of in my conscious goal setting. Mm-hmm. Mm. 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 Well, that might be a good... Thanks, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, what... Um, what happened after university? What what was the kind of trajectory from there? Oh, that was a rough time because I I then I had wanted to go to New York University, which mm-hmm. um, was also like another one of those super expensive schools. And my mother was very f- afraid for me to live in New York, and so they kind of put the kibosh on that. Um, but I knew that I wanted to live there since I was a little kid because we would go in to the city for mm. class trips. And I was like, who wouldn't want to live here instead of where I live? Mm-hmm. And so I went there. And a lot of people that I had gone to school with went there. And it was a struggle. Mm-hmm to survive. When, when was, when was that? Mid nineties. So I graduated undergrad in 95 and I went straight, I I came home for a few months and worked as a waitress and saved up money. And then I moved there and it was, it was not easy. And a lot of my friends from school had help from their parents, like their parents were paying their rent or, and everything, you know, everything else in some cases. So I, I didn't really get how the world works yet in terms of money, like how money works and how mm. that defines everything. I didn't, I probably, I don't know. You just thought you should try hard, like as hard as your friends were trying. Well, or harder, I <laughs> yeah. guess, because it seemed to be so much easier for a lot of them, but mm. also nothing was happening for yeah. anybody. Yeah. So it was, I had some rough, rough years there, but that's where you build your muscle and mm. figure out and, and, and learn about what kind of work is happening. So when I moved there, Richard Foreman was, uh, still making work. So I saw some Richard Foreman productions and that totally blew the whole, the whole thing wide open. And Mm. I started working with some of his, um, some of the younger people that had been working with him on their work and, um, learning a different way of, of doing things. And that has continued. And some of those people that I met at that time, I, I worked with for, you know, I'm still working with a lot of them. And someone gave me some really good advice at that time, which was get to know as many people as you can Mm -hmm. and say yes to everything so that you're constantly expanding the circles of people that you know. Mm. And I really did do that. And and I still am doing that to the point where I'm like, oh, my God, I know too many people now. (laughs) How can I, you know, go to the be with them all? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So but it really was true because you end up running into people later and everyone's in a different role and a different Mm. position and, but Mm. you know each other. And Mm. so it's, it's actually quite rewarding to, to have stayed in, in one place and committed to it for so long. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if you could touch on how you came to the point where you decided to make your own theater company. Thank you. 
Kira, I um I was not doing great as a performer. Uh, it just wasn't, there wasn't a lot. I was doing a lot, but there wasn't a lot happening for me. And I was getting really frustrated. And I wrote a piece of my own with a friend as a joke. And we ended up performing it years later. He was uh -huh. an actual playwright. And I was just a, a frustrated performer. And when we did that, there was a rush of energy in the whole room that I just felt this is what I need to be. This is more like it because I felt like I finally was able to express what the craziness that was inside of me. And mm. I had been able to build a framework that could contain it and, and like, uh, communicate it. Cause I was really, really nuts, high energy at, in, especially at that age, like all through my twenties and most of my thirties. And I was always getting in trouble. So create, creative practice was really important to me for, to just work myself into the ground all the time. So um, I, for a long time, was writing plays for myself to perform in and then getting other people to perform in them also and doing the costumes. No stage manager, like it, it, maybe 25 people in a cast for no money. And people uh -huh. would just do it. And I would ask people that I met in different contexts to come and perform in them, same as in fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and so I should have probably started the theater company and saying the official thing of it then. Uh -huh. um, but that didn't happen until 2015. Yeah. Um, I went back to grad school as a... Um, as a, as a playwright to Brooklyn College, to the program that Mac Wellman and Cor uh, Aaron Courtney run. And so I was really focused on writing. I was writing on commission and writing in outlandish ways, uh, looking for new structures of collaboration for several years after that, from like 2006 until until really I started my company in 2015 and even longer. Like I'll still do that work if, uh -huh. if something interesting and... Um, and helpful comes up but I started to become more of a control freak about the way that the writing was being directed and uh -huh. so I wasn't able to behave myself well in the um, traditional hierarchy of uh, of a theater working structure and a couple of friends had said to me you're gonna have to start your own company and these are people that I trusted and that was the last thing that I felt like doing but deep down, I knew that they were right. So mm -hmm. I started it in 2015. And it's been difficult, but I am learning to balance the creative and the practical in a way that I had not. I just mm. really was writing this stuff that was so outlandish and impossible to perform, except by myself. And I also felt like I didn't want to be by myself anymore. There were other artists that I wanted to work with and also it's impossible to make work actually by yourself, even if you're yeah. telling yourself that's what yeah. you're doing. But I wanted to be able to choose my collaborators and bring people that mm. I, I wanted into the room. And so when you have your own company, you do have the freedom to do yeah. that. Yeah, mm. that is actually something I've always kind of thought about with um, with theatre makers and musicians like that are making and writing and then that other people can access uh, just me as being a control freak myself like I wouldn't I would really struggle with that oh, yeah giving no over collaboration yeah no thanks. I mean yeah. collaboration when you are one of the you know one of the partners within that and that you can you yeah. know um but you know let 
yes, handing over your work for others. I imagine it must be a very hard process depending on who you're working with at that time. I, I guess yeah, well. like when I would visit you in your studio two years ago <laughs> when I would walk by testing grounds, I was like, that looks like heaven in there. Like she's just in there making and it's like a little like scientist laboratory <laughs> almost. I'm also the person that always shuts the door. Like I think um, there Trent and Ari would like want to come in and talk to me and I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't come in. Yeah. <laughs> That Make an appointment, please. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, writing has been like that part. And then it opens up. And I feel for me, it's important to work with other people and share the burdens and the credit and everything with a, a group of mm. people. And I love that. And it ends up becoming something that it wouldn't have been mm-hmm. able to come if it, mm-hmm. it was just yeah. yeah, Yeah. That is definitely something I'm starting to learn as I collaborate with people is that when people have strengths that you like being able to recognize your weaknesses and your strengths and so yes. that you can hand something over and be like you're so much better at this than mm. me please well it's a skill too ahead. you know you actually have to learn how to collaborate yeah it's not something that's <laughs> inherent you know and, so and it's, oh. it's well it's not something as well that like you know you necessarily get taught when that's, you're at art school well in prime I feel like in in school they're always like sure. group projects I was always the kid that was like I'm gonna do this on my own yeah <laughs> and like too. figure but, out a way yeah. to recreate the project that's meant to be like a group of five to do it on my own and like well, argue yeah. to the teacher that I can do this <laughs> but the, yeah. like I mean our particular arts education as well it's like okay partitioned off mm. you go in your little box right. and That's you paint right. and you lock you know you put your headphones on it's early headphone days lock yourself in you know paint for like eight hours yeah and just go that's right come up for a cigarette so <laughs> heavenly yeah so heavenly well it is in one way but it's also like a rejection I of everybody know. else. That's true. Mm. That's true. Mm. I mean, I have both. I have both times where I'm like, I need to be alone. Mm. And mostly writing practice allows allows me some of that time when I can get it now. Cause, mm. But what I love to do is to sort of make a space where I can invite collaborators in and I know, I know what they do yeah. and what they can do. And so I just like set mm. them and I give them a little, like a couple of things that I'm thinking about mm-hmm. and I just let them find the connection between what they're already thinking about in their own aesthetic agenda and these other things that I'm thinking about and just let them go to town. Mm. And it's when you can choose people that you trust them and you trust their practice, you don't have to worry about yeah. it you just know that they're going to make something so much more amazing mm-hmm. and I, I work with an astrologer that's one of the people that I work with her name is Omi Johnson she's amazing um, she's olightningastrology.com she lives in New Orleans and I went to undergrad with her and she came and worked on this 12 shouts project with me and uh, she had this observation in one of the rehearsals one day. She was like, everything that's happening in this room right now is something that you can kind of do a little bit, but then you get these other people that are really good at it to come mm. and actually do mm-hmm. do it and it's their thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. with a project like that that was so massive mm-hmm. and went on for, for so long and working with so many people like performers, costume designers, choreographers, mm-hmm. I'm sure so many other security guards, arts administrators. So many people. How, <laughs> how do you, um, I, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but how do you set up a space where you are still in control and you can kind of delegate tasks and 
have a cohesive piece of work come out on the end. Well, you're making an assumption <laughs> that it was a cohesive piece of work, but it is a process that I'm still, that was really a big learning process. Yeah. And what really was important that came out of it is like, okay, Sibs, what kind of person do you want to be? Mm. Because in that situation, you can really be a total a-hole. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> But it's going to be See, so I'm much. I'm sitting here in admiration because I know I would be <laughs> no, that. I'd like... be that. I'd definitely be that a hole. I mean, yeah. there were times when, like, be like everyone leave. I'm doing it myself. <laughs> I mean, I could have been like that. And there were times when I was like, wouldn't it just be easier and simpler if I just did like a smaller version of what? But then it just wouldn't have meant as much. Mm. There's something about the chemistry of the people in the room for me that is that's almost like what the medium is. And mm. it's almost like setting people up from different parts of my life and putting them in a room and watching how they interact and become friends. And then they end up collaborating on stuff or they end up forming a romantic relationship in some cases. Mm. And watching how that happens and then uh also this uh, there's a working structure that i'm experimenting with which is not hierarchical it's actually uh it's it's about the leader uh faltering and then everyone else having to come in and pick up the pieces and mm. make the thing happen so that everyone has to take responsibility for it but then everyone gets their say but that no one is coming at it with just this is my agenda yeah Where everyone has to myself first of all and then everybody else has to put their own agenda kind of aside and their own worries and concerns aside for the sake of this bigger thing that's happening and so there would always come a time when I couldn't go any further because it was so stressful for me to have to be the leader and make all these decisions and endless, endless questions that I don't have answers to. Uh. So exhausting that I would always sort of have this breakdown. And people are used to hierarchy. It feels really safe to them. Mm -hmm. Everyone's mm -hmm. role is really clear. Um, they know that there's someone else that's going to tell them what to do. And we're used to it. So, um, but I was so not good at being that person at the apex of this mm. hierarchy. Mm. So there was always a point where I would be like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And I can't go any further, actually. I'm totally tapped out. And at that moment, the whole thing is going to fail because she's down. She's mm. down for the count. She's not going to make it. Or I would actually get physically hurt sometimes. It was mm. always, you know, and I tried to observe this pattern and like make it so it wasn't so dramatic. Mm -hmm. But then everybody has to sort of swoop in and, mm. and make it happen and do their part of it What it, and make their own decisions mm. about it and try something. Yeah. And it always would end up this huge celebration. I think the fact that those rituals only happened once helped, um, but uh, always something really magical would come out of it that we just couldn't believe no one could believe it mm. at the end mm. yeah well it kind of I guess you can't you're kind of answering my um question that I had in my head there about how to create a sustainable workflow for um performing a work for three years mm -hmm. um and how how do you do that but I guess 
yeah, you kind of just answered that by allowing others to take step up agency yeah Mm -hmm. and Mm. and letting go Mm. letting go go giving as everyone as much imaginative food as i could and having done my research and gotten excited and like a little bit obsessed with it and talking Mm -hmm. about it in a way that gets everybody's else's imagination going Mm. and then just letting them go nuts yeah you know Mm. how amazing it was pretty um what's the word that i'm looking for um, like it's pretty radical. I I guess it is. I mean, I and I think it's really important right now to be working that way. And it was funny because everyone sort of got used to it. They'd be like, "Oh, here, uh. here, okay, yeah." <laughs> like we know what kind of questions to ask and what kind not to ask mm. that aren't going to be helpful. And like a new person would come on and be like asking all these questions, and they'd be like, "You gotta chill out because she doesn't know." <laughs> well, and they would Just educate each, it. you know, everybody yes. educates yeah. each other. Yes. So yeah. we had like well, a you created a group. culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. what, that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's exactly what it became. And there was a lot of support. I want to say that too. Like, there's no way I could go forward from here and keep doing mm-hmm. that without that mm-hmm. much support again. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Um, I guess you've kind of already answered a lot of these um, that you've brought up, a lot of challenges that you have had to overcome to continue your practice. But I'm just wondering if there are um, any other challenges that kind of stick out to you that have um, you've had to kind of overcome or that you're still working through to continue making. Yeah, it's it's mostly personal stuff. I feel like it's stuff with my personality. Mm. Um the stuff that wasn't so great in my childhood, like I'm having to heal that now. And I'm finding these like little slivers of like evil <laughs> and darkness that are still in my personality. Mm. And You're I'm making this gesture like, like pulling tweezers. Ha- like, no, like pulling hair out of the drain. <laughs> okay, that's good. I was thinking of it as like tweezers. Mm. And because I... I don't see myself as being the kind of artist that points out everything that's wrong. There's, we need those artists. For me, it's like about imagining the way it could be almost um, like utopian or something, Mm -hmm. but something that's also practical. What are the practical adjustments that we could make and how can we visualize a better way together and make artwork that uh, that's a proposal or that's an idea that we could actually move toward in a Mm. positive way. So in order to do that, I have to make sure that I stay really positive. Mm. And that is my current challenge is to not give in to negativity and to make my life so that I... uh, I have the things that I need that allow me to stay positive. It's really hard at this current <laughs> I know. <laughs> time. But it's a good time to do it. Yeah, it's a good challenging. Challenge. Yeah, mm-hmm. like if you can get through now, mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes if you can just get through a day now, that's a a pretty amazing yeah. act of defiance. Yeah. Um, I guess, and again, you kind of have already answered that in um, – about I was just wondering what does a successful practice look like to you does do you have a a a way that you think a successful practice even looks or is it something that's ever changing I'm still figuring that out because there's a lot at the practical end and with having a company Mm. that I need to get in place now 
and like the infrastructure of my company. Because really when I did that 12 Shouts project, the Whitney Museum became this other um, part of that organism, this support part of that organism. And there's something like I'm, I, I, I have trouble asking for help, mm. especially when it's from, you know, when, when it's the practical stuff. I have trouble asking someone to come and be my producer and um, when there's so many people that want to also be making their own creative work. So I that is now what I need to fit. Like, how do I get that support mechanism yeah. in place? And so I'm I'm doing a lot of visualizing of how how can that work. Mm. At the moment. I, I'm wondering um, with younger people who wanted to be Sarah Jessica Parker and had this idea of like television and the stage. Was there anything that you had to resolve, or um, I guess it might have been an evolution over the time, but making work that is sitting like in a gallery outside of those conventional theatre contexts, mm. was that something that um, like you were considering when you were younger or were you did you have a vision of like um, your idea of what a theatre maker or performer looked like? Um, did that have to kind of shift and change over the years about where your practice can sit and um, what it looks like? Yeah, I mean, I just never fit in. Yeah. And that's been true for me my whole life. I never fit in. And uh, and it's true today. My work doesn't fit in. And it ended up at the Whitney because there was a curator there who's into that, into yeah. stuff that you can't tell what it is. And so that was how I ended up there doing my work. And so I've, I've, I have to sort of um, invent my own working structures, my own opportunities, my own faith in what I'm doing. So that was, it, it was like the Sarah Jessica Parker image, like someone who is really able to uh, be successful within the system and mm, like take mm. that system by the lapels and be like, this is, you know, here's how I'm going to, I'm going to work this system and yeah. succeed is something that just causes me to crumble inside when I think about having like, what I would have to do <laughs> yeah. to make that happen. So how can I, so it's, it's always been about building this other thing. Well, I'll just build my own thing, mm. which now I'm aging and I don't have as much, I used to have endless energy. So that was a great thing for me to have to do, but now that's becoming it's not as possible. Like I can't mm. just work around the clock like I used to, mm. which I really, that is what, um, a goal like that requires, I yeah. mean, invent a new universe. You gotta have a mm -hmm. lot of energy mm -hmm. to do that. Do you feel like you're seeing a shift within different institutional structures about what they are allowing and showing and, um, how they're presenting work? I feel like in Australia <laughs> we've like, we just in the past like 10 years finally got the dance that dance can fit mm. within the visual arts as well, which is something that's like was definitely talked a lot about for a very long time before this, but it's like Melbourne, it was like this new thing. It was like, oh, yeah, dancers. Um, or like a visual artist can be a dancer as well. Mm. Um, so we're starting to get like structural changes in the way that the institutions are showing work and mm. that um, there can be crossovers within practices. I'm wondering if you're seeing that as well in different areas and... Um, yeah, we're starting to. I feel like the visual art, I like the visual art institutions a lot because there's a different conversation going on that is free from uh, 
dramatic narrative structure. Those like I don't have to worry about those rules. Mm. I can write whatever I want and no one's going to give me a hard time about it. Uh, and I think they are seem to be getting more into performance because it sort of solves the the issues of commodification of visual art that are that are getting to be so gross mm-hmm. i probably hear too that it's a it's a it's it's really hard to collect a performance mm. yeah um it's hard to sell a performance and it's so not a product it's not a product it's a process and and uh we had that experience many times at the whitney museum the one um one guy that worked there in the in in production there I heard him telling his boss, well, it's not as bad in here as it was yesterday. It looked like a Joanne fabric store exploded <laughs> because we were there making our stuff at the last minute. <laughs> There's just glue guns and sewing machines everywhere. And uh, so crazy. You know, everything was so nuts and um, exuberantly so as well, mm-hmm. but such a mess. And they're not, they weren't used to that. And mm. I remember they were bringing yeah. some trustee in to tour them around. Around. The guy just had this look of horror, <laughs> abject horror on his face. Not. Yeah, <laughs> it's so sloppy. But it's it's so. But funny. it's like first year art art school stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's just like what is happening. But it's so funny. Like you know that I mean this is that whole thing. It's a white cube gallery. It's like this work that does go through a process to be made. That is messy. That materials are messy. That the process the thinking, everything is messy. And then we put it in this gallery and it's so removed from that and it's so clean and it's so like... Well, it's delivered there as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's delivered. final product. Wrapped in bubble wrap and... It's handled there. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) It's with, you know, a specially paid technician, whereas in the studio it's just, you know, it's just work. Like maybe you were the first person to use a hot glue gun in the Whitney. Yeah, it could be, yeah, yeah, because the building was so Mm. new. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I mean it could have given some of those arts workers a real education around. (laughs) It was wild. It was definitely wild. But I also got the feeling that, like, it never... It never should have happened there, but it did anyway, Mm. which was really a beautiful feeling. And I love to bring that to other places. Mm. And there was a real kind of um, redneck energy about it Mm. that we would bring into this super fancy building that I didn't even feel like I should be allowed into (laughs) when I first started working there, except that the people were so lovely um, and so welcoming. But by the end of it, we had really left this imprint where this fancy membership desk that we were using as a crazy altar for our weirdo religion <laughs> that we were starting would never look to me. It would never look like um, capitalism to me again mm. um, or the stairwell that was, you know, it just there were so many there were so many things that we left behind in terms even though it was an ephemeral event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Energetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Mm. So I hope that the institutions will start to change a little more and, mm. uh, and and open up a little bit more to allow some um, disruption, like real yeah. disruption in the moment, uh, to happen. Because it was it was li- it was quite liberating. I think mm. 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 so mm. important. Mm. Um, Kira's left me my favorite question, which is really nice. Of her, but, um, you guys have a whole language that you're doing to each other, like that's unspoken, like eyes. Yeah. Um, uh, so we ask all of our artists what what their practice looks like. Um, 
we usually go go by week, but a day, you know, I think generally everybody has a different day, but um like what is a week? What does a week in a life look like to you? Yeah, uh, that's such a great question. Well, I have a dog who is sort of my uh, my family. He's my child. He's my husband. He's where I unleash all of my maternal urges. Sorry, unleash. Sort of, oh my god, I'm so funny, and I don't even realize. <laughs> brilliant that was perfect. I unleash upon him oh god all my maternal my frustration of maternal you know expression and he sort of holds that for me and he really he works it believe me so um and he needs to get out he's a big dog so he needs to get out every day so every day contains a, an excursion into into uh Areas where there are less people, more trees, more rocks, more plants. Is that first first thing in the morning? No, because that is I, I try to reserve first thing in the morning for creative energy because mm. that's when I have the most energy. Mm-hmm. It causes problems with him because he then he'll mope and sort of pull at me. Well, he's got his creative energy too. Well, he's got his yeah. interest that he yeah. wants to do, so he wants to go out first thing. Um, but I do. I've started doing. Um, this crazy, I can't believe I'm going to tell you guys this, but, um, this crazy, just aff- us. <laughs> I know, that's what I mean. Um, these affirmations, do you guys know Louise Hay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Am I the first person that's uh, brought up Louise Hay on this podcast? Y- yes. Yeah. Or ad- admitted yes. to it. Anyway. I, I have read some Lu- Louise Hay. So <laughs> I'm like, other I'm people like, have spoken yeah. about other wellness practices. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I do some affirmations for 15 minutes. I write for 15 minutes, just like a journal. Mm-hmm. And then I do like usually some kind of yoga mm. and for like a half hour or an hour. And a lot of times it's yin yoga, which is basically just about schlumping over and forgiving yourself. <laughs> and like, oh, and sometimes I'll get the more. The best into yoga it. there is. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't have to do anything. And then. Uh, do you use like a video? Yes. Yeah. YouTube, I should yeah. say. It's YouTube and it's in my home. I, I've stopped going to those classes and paying mm. that money and getting angry and all because there's so many feelings and frustrations that mm. come up. Oh, and, yeah. Do you have a bolster? At home? I, yeah, I ordered a bolster. I ordered some blocks Jealous. and I have a. Um, I know it's. it's well, it was what a are big you going to slump over? I know. Well, you, you, could, you can use pillows. Yeah. But I was like, I got to have a bolster. Yeah. And now I want another one because mm-hmm. I want like this bigger one. So it's taking, I'm trying to take these. And I have a strap also. Yeah. So I use all that stuff. And that is becomes necessary. I'm in my, well, I'm I'm in middle age. I was diagnosed with middle age um, <laughs> a few years ago. And so, you know, you get, you have to stretch. So I have to do that. And then I really try to get into some writing. I used to just get up and start writing, which is probably really would be great but I'm also trying to figure out this practical end of things Mm -hmm. so I'm putting energy toward that and then so I do writing emails I usually try not to do too much of in one day like I'll leave a day for it because it can take over yeah Mm -hmm. and when I do the writing it's sort of like prioritizing like I I set the prioritizing of what I'm visualizing and then I take that and I go to this is pretty new I go to my to-do list and I number it Mm. I prioritize my to-do list according to what I've envisioned like this is where I want to go in this world in this Mm. universe this is the mark that Mm. I want to leave on the world Mm -hmm. this is the healing that I want to do to bring to myself and to others 
whatever the thing is, this is what my Louise Hay, mm. you know, efforts have shown me this morning. And then I prioritize my to-do list according to that. That's so, so good. It, and it is magic when not, I can not the do angriest it. person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And and so, you know, the Louise Hay stuff changes every day, but then so I can alter. And then I um and then I go through that to-do list. And and uh, you know, if it's creative writing, then I do the creative writing. If it's I have to do this budget, I do the budget. If I have to do this grant application, I do the grant application and I prioritize it and I leave the because I used to do this thing of um let me just get this stuff that I don't want to do out of the way or do the yeah. easier thing first yeah. to get it out of the way, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But then that is what eats up your best energy. Your whole life. And you want to do that when you're like, oh, who cares about anything? Like, I'll just do mm. this now. So that's been a big, made a big difference. And then the hike usually happens at like 2 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, and I take him out for a pee and I feed him. And, and then there's always errands after the hike. You got to go get food. You got to come home and cook the food. And I try to work a little bit after that. Um, and I should say that I get up at like four or five. So there's a long span of early morning time mm -hmm. that I'm using to work. So it's not, I'm not getting up at 10, but it's, it's a long day. So, so then like by eight o'clock, it's time to wind it down. I got to wind this down. I got to mm -hmm. be in bed by 10. Mm -hmm. And that's for uh, my adrenal glands, actually. Mm. Yeah. I had an, a medical intuitive guy who was like, I was working with him for a while. He was great. And he was like, your adrenal glands are so squirted out from being so stressed out for so long. You're going to have to work to replenish them. Mm -hmm. So I was taking a supplement for a while. And he was like, you have to be in bed by 10 every night. And I was yeah. like, what? I can't do that. I'm in the theater. And he's like, well, then you're going to get sick. Yeah. So I started doing it and I immediately felt different. And now that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life for the better. Mm -hmm. I really was headed for disaster. At the end of the week, when I'm like, oh, man, I'm almost caught up. I can almost catch up. I can get all the rest of this done tomorrow. It's like, no, girl, because tomorrow's your teaching day. And so on Fridays, I get up and I drive for an hour to Sarah Lawrence College, and I teach, like, heavy metal teaching from <laughs> uh, 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. with a half an hour break in the middle, and then I drive Whoa. back home. It's super intense. Yeah. Some yeah. weeks I teach mm. during the week also. Mm. So that's what it looks like. Mm. Wow. Do you take weekends? Or I was day? looking at that question. I'm starting to do that once in a while. Yeah. And it's very difficult for me. And I, if I do it, I don't um, do anything social. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's with someone that I've known kind of yeah. forever. Because uh, it just makes me really uneasy. Like, I, I want to be going back and getting back to my practice mm -hmm. the whole time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're just like, what am I? Like, yeah, I'm just like, like sitting. Me. Yeah. Oh and like God. looking like I'm losing my mind like, right now. Yeah. I have to get out of here. What, yeah. what is weekend again? Yeah. There's yeah. only yeah. a few people in this world that I can actually hang out with and that like, it's actually restful. Yeah. yeah. Just actually I have hang a few. Out. But it's few. otherwise, yeah, I'm sitting there being like, Oh, I really need to get back to this. Yeah. So I really went, Oh, what is the use of this conversation? Yes. I know. <laughs> and then oh I just feel like an asshole that's like <laughs> I read something that David Sedaris wrote one time and it was really helpful which was we have four burners. I got in a big argument with another artist about this recently. And I was like, Tr you know, try it. Let me know, you know. And uh, there's family, friends, work, oh, yeah, and health. And you 
in order to be successful, whatever your definition of success is, will be defined by what you do. You have to shut one of the burners off. Mm. And to be really successful, you got to shut off two. And so I go through periods where I'm like, all right, we got to put the family burner on. You know, we'll go visit the family. Got to put this. So right now it's really work and health for me. Mm. And so I don't have a lot of, um, like, if I have a friend, like, you have to come up and see me and come on the hike with us, yep. with me and my dog. And, like, that's my friendship. And the people who are able to do that, I stay friends with. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the people I work with. I, yeah. My work is very, very social. So I don't feel yeah. lonesome, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. How could you feel lonely with Ray? He takes away loneliness, for sure. Aww. He's a sweet guy. He's a sweet guy. Um. I'm wondering, Sybil, if you would be able to share with us some of the more influential resources that you have come across. I mean, Louise Hay is incredible. And she has really helped me make some very positive changes. Mm. And that whole negativity thing that I'm working with is very helpful if I can learn to turn on Louise Hay. Um, I also listen on YouTube. There's these... um, like chakra musics, like chakra balancing music. And I'll put those on and they mm. kind of keep things uh, feeling generative and positive in, in the atmosphere and they drown out other noise. Um, uh, there's a book called Women Who Run With The Wolves. It's from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Have you guys read that? I've heard of it. I think like you guys are kind of living that book, so you don't have to probably... You you could read it, and it would be great, but you're already doing all this stuff. But it sort of helped me uh, justify for myself putting my creative practice at the center of my life and not apologizing for it and not... Um, uh, and just... Uh, owning that and getting behind it Mm -hmm. that that that's been a huge influence for me also um in terms of the subject matter of what I'm working on in my work it's uh um the chalice and the blade a friend of mine gave it to me a guy friend and I just was so moved when I started reading it that a dude gave me that book I was like maybe things are going to be okay Mm. um that that's been a huge influence on me. And then there's another writer called uh, Victoria Nelson, who uh, was a huge influence on me. She's she uh, she's in Berkeley, and she wrote a book called The Secret Life of Puppets, and another one called Gothica. And she also writes creatively. She writes stories and plays, and her writing, uh, particularly her uh, academic writing, has been so enormously inspiring and world changing for me. Uh, and a lot of my work uh, um, early on came from her. Like when I really started getting rolling with writing, I I was hugely inspired by her. And any kind of travel that I can do. Mm. I always learn and I get really charged up and my imagination really gets going. Mm -hmm. Um, So anytime I travel, I always come home and want to write something. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I've done a bunch of um, journeying. I guess it would be called shamanic journeying with a mentor that I work with, who I also work with on wilderness skills upstate New York. And that has brought me a long way to uh, visualizing and receiving vision Mm -hmm. um, and inspiration. Also, that's also just plays into everything, everything that's happening in my life. And it sort of shows me how it all folds together on this spiritual plane, which Mm. has been transformative for me. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. That's so great. Thanks for sharing those with us. Yeah. My pleasure. Well, here's a good follow-on then. So if you could travel through time. Oh, yeah. Back to, I don't know, primary school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Making plays mm-hmm. in the cafeteria. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, would, what advice would you give? Like, what would you say to yourself? Oh, man. I, I wasted a lot of time in my life thinking I had to get married or be in a partnership um, with like one guy for the rest of my life. Uh And I kept trying and trying to do that and being like, this guy sucks. And actually that wasn't true. Like they were all great guys, but, um, I was looking for the, I, I, I was wrong and I was taught wrongfully to be looking for that in my uh-huh. life. And I wish someone would have said to me early on, um, don't pri- prioritize your work. Mm. And you will always have love in your life. But um, you, you don't have to feel obligated to get married and have a family. Because yeah. I wasted some a lot of time and energy thinking that that's what I had to do. Yeah, and creative energy probably as well. Yes, yeah, it all comes from the same place. Mm. So, uh, I I think if I had, if I would have just been like, I can have boyfriends, you know, like I do now. I have boyfriends sometimes, mm-hmm. and it's um and it's wonderful. But then it's almost like like a plant, like the way a plant goes through phases of flowering and then seeding and then going back into a generative phase. Like it has to follow a cycle. Um, and then I'm, I just don't have that being an artist is, is kind of all consuming. Mm. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I thought I could do everything. And and I don't think that you can, I don't think that's true. Mm. I see women doing it and I see men doing it together, women together, men together, but it's, I rarely see a woman leading a fulfilled life as an artist while living with a man. Mm. And that's not the men's fault necessarily. Yeah. I think like a society, mm-hmm. like structural problems. Yes. Yeah. And biolo- it's biological too, I think. Yeah. It's hormonal and it's it's all this stuff that that energy needs to go into my work. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. That's some pretty important life advice. Oh my God. It's devastating. It's devastating. I've told it to younger women too, because mm. I wish someone would have told me and they cry because mm. they're like trying to live with this filmmaker and it's not working out <laughs> for their work. And it's like, you know, it's very, it's terrible. I think also just to have the permission to put all your energy into your work. Mm-hmm. You're not, that permission is never really granted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. especially to women. Yeah, you have to take it. Yeah. And, and, and you have to um, have the stomach to hurt people's feelings. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not just romantic relationships, like family That's relationships right. as well. That's it exactly can sometimes right. hurt other people. You have to let people down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not easy. Yeah, but it's okay. It is okay. It's okay to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, this got really deep. I know, it's rough. <laughs> it's rough, but we have to, we have to forge ahead with this. Yeah. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we have to bring it mm-hmm. to the future. Mm. Thank you so much for Thanks, coming you guys. Today. I love yeah. you guys. This was really coming. wonderful. Thank you for being here and sharing your stories and your practice. With it us. was a huge gift to me to oh. be able to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks. This episode is recorded on the sovereign land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. 
Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPracPodcast or send us an email at ProPracPod at gmail.com.